Right. For those who are in uh, either Orange County or Seminole uh, County public schools, this is uh, nearing, we're nearing the end of the first quarter here. So that means uh, one quarter of the school year is done, uh, soon to be <clears throat> getting uh, report cards and things like that. It's, a, it's an exciting thing for me as a first time, as a parent of a first timer in public school. Uh, Manny is uh, in, in kindergarten. She's nearing the end of her first quarter as well. So what that means for me is that a quarter of this year, uh, sitting in car line is almost over. Right? For those of you who don't know what car line is, it is a uh, everyday uh, 45 to 55 minute gift that God has given to me in order to sanctify my soul and make me more like Jesus. It is the scene of many heroic battles where character and Christ-likeness are shaped and formed. Things like patience, perseverance, joy in the face of affliction. All of these things are being forged in that place so that all of the sin in my heart can be surfaced in order that I may then repent and be transformed into the ever-increasing likeness of Christ day by day. In theory, that's the way it works. So this week, I was sitting in Carline. I had been there fighting through all these people for about 50 minutes, and I got Manny, and she sat in the bank, and she started to tell me about her day as we were waiting for the 14,000 other cars to get out of the parking lot. You wait in line, right, and waiting for the people to cross and all this stuff, and this car flies by next to uh, uh, flies by next to the line of people that are waiting to get out, and they try and cut in in front of all of these people, and specifically in front of my car. So my first thought is, oh, no, you ain't going to do this. <laughs> I've waited too long. My second thought was, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> but <laughs> They couldn't hear that, obviously. They couldn't hear my thoughts. And so as I'm sitting there in my car, I had to make known to them that which was unable to be heard. And so I inched ever closer to the car in front of me, almost to the point where I was bumper to bumper, so this car could not get in. And I'm under my breath. I'm thinking, there's no way this car has the audacity to cut in front of all of these cars and to slide in in front of me so they can get out uh, before the rest of us. And all the while, I'm thinking this, the cross that hangs from my rearview mirror is dangling as if God is trying to get my attention. What might he be saying? I think he was saying, listen, this is your moment. Right? This is your proving ground right here. And how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond when someone does something that you think is wrong and he's taken your right to continue going? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Some days you win and some days you lose. But the question is, have you been wronged lately? You've been wronged by somebody lately? How did you respond to that? How did you respond to that? Maybe it's through someone... Uh, calling you names behind your back. Somebody's been talking bad about you at work. Maybe it's through somebody who took something from you financially. They took advantage of your kindness, and they took something from you. Or uh, they made up these stories and said, no, nah, you know what, my, uh, yeah, my, my friend, they, uh, they, they, they can validate that this is true, and, and it, it's not. What do you do in a time like that? See, how we respond as people of God, how you and I respond when we are wronged is the true indication of our spiritual maturity. Now you get this? 
how we respond when we feel like we have been wronged is an indication of our spiritual maturity because the root always determines the fruit. The root always determines the fruit and the deeper the gospel root in you, the sweeter the gospel fruit will be that comes out of you. So how do you respond when you are wronged? It's very important, very relevant. Matthew chapter 5, some hard teachings that Jesus gives here that helps us to understand if we get the gospel on a heart-to-heart, on a relational, on a day-to-day practical level. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 38 through 42. It's a very rich passage, and we're not going to have uh, the opportunity in the short time that we have to unpack everything, uh, but we're going to do our best to at least hit on a couple things that would be important for us to understand as we seek to move forward. Matthew 5, uh, verses 38 through 42, this is Jesus speaking to the people of God, those who are in the kingdom, those who have been born again, who have new life and the spirit of God living in them. It's the ethic of the kingdom of God. This is what he says in Matthew 5. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is God's word. Okay, two thoughts today. Here's the first thing. In a culture, right, in a culture that tells you to value your rights, okay, revenge is normal. In a culture that tells you that you've got rights, you've got to fight for your rights, okay, revenge is normal. Right? So this is life in our culture. Uh, we, uh, in America, were founded upon this basic principle that God created all people equal, and that we've been endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, right? Rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have rights, that's what we've been told. And when those rights are infringed upon, then we have every right to fight for those rights back. If we've been wronged, we got to fight in order to make things right. Some, someone's done something bad to us, and we need to, we need to make that stuff right. That's, that's, that's what our culture tells us. You've got rights, I've got rights, and if we've been wronged, we got every, I mean, that's, that's, our, that's our, I can't think of a better word than right, to fight in order to have those things back. And so, not only a cultural thing, but something that we know is normal when we're born. You see two babies, and uh, oh, moms are, are tired, so they want to have a play date. At least the kids can entertain themselves so that moms can talk about uh, all the craziness of life. And so two babies are playing. One of them's got a bottle, and they're playing with it. And they're throwing it up, or they're, whatever they're doing with it. They don't you know, have the motor skills to throw it, but they're playing with it. And then the other baby comes, and they take it from them. That baby who has just been uh, robbed understands, you know what, that's mine. That, I had, this is, that's my right to have this toy back, to have this bottle back. And so they fight for it. But not only do they try and take it back, they, they take it back and then they push the other baby. They poke them, they scratch them, they bite them, they do whatever it takes in order to get that stuff back. But usually what happens is we don't fight only for justice. Uh, we don't only fight for what we have been, what's been taken from us. We usually take that one step further. Okay? Because when we've been wronged, we have four options here. 
We can give them, treat them the way that they deserve to be treated. That's called justice. We could treat them by withholding that which they deserve. That's called mercy. We could treat them better than they deserve. That's called grace. Or we could treat them worse than they deserve, and that's called revenge. And a lot of times in our culture, in a culture that tells you you can fight for your rights, then revenge is normal. Because we don't oftentimes stop at just justice, do we? We take it the next step further. When I was a kid, I, I used to love uh, sweets. And my brother did also. And so we went to the Korean grocery store. And uh, there was this, uh, it was a Japanese candy called Marukawa. Do you guys know what these are? It's like these little, little tiny boxes. And they've got little gumballs in them. They're like three or four. You can shake them. And they come in. They, they, they're sold in like, there's eight boxes that come in a cellophane pack together. And I had this. A grape gum that I loved so much, and I hid it from my brother on the top shelf. He had to stand on my bed to get it. But somehow he found it. Somehow he found it, and he ate it. He chewed it. I think I hope he didn't eat it. He chewed it without telling me. And so when I looked up and I grabbed it, I realized, oh, my gosh, there's one pack of Marukawa gum that's missing. And so I called all I, – I was so angry – and I yelled at my brother. He's older than me. He could have beat me up, but he didn't. And I said, you're so bad. You're so mean. And so when he was not looking, I took his hubba bubba bubble gum, which had a pack of five, and I took three of them, and I chewed them all at one time just to get back at him. <laughs> just to get back at him. But was I, I, I thought I was doing justice, but I really took it the next step further because that's typically what happens. And we say we're fighting for justice. But what we're actually after is revenge. That's why when you drive down I-4, the kind of billboards you see the most of any other billboard, maybe next to like the, the theme parks, you see billboards for lawyers. Right? 1-800-ACCIDENT. Se habla español. Accidente. Right? All of these different things like that. And one time we saw this. We were driving. Uh, my family was driving. And, and there was a sign for Dan Newland, attorney Dan Newland. And, and all is like, that's not Dan Newland. And as we got closer, it was this random dude with balding head, and he said, Dan Newland won me $1 million. That's the kind of world that we live in. If you've been wronged, you've got to fight for your rights. That's why uh, in 1992, this elderly lady, you, you've heard this. This is famous. Uh, we were sitting in, in prayer meeting this morning, and one of our guys, John, uh, John Kim, our, our dentist, he had a McDonald's cup, and he drank it, and he said, ooh, this hot. And I said, ha-ha, that's really funny. Do you remember the lady who sued McDonald's in 1992 because she spilled hot coffee on her leg and she sued them because the cup did not say that the coffee was hot? 200000 in punitive damage, in compensatory damages, $2.7 million in punitive damages given to her. That's a lot of money for spills of hot coffee on 6% of your body, but $3 million. And we say, I just, I just want to fight for my rights. I just want justice. But what we consider to be justice oftentimes goes a step further into something other than justice. And a lot of times on a personal level, it becomes revenge. Last time you've been wronged. Last time you've been wronged. Did you just want to get everything back that they took from you? Or did you want to twist a knife into them a little bit more? See, when there's no boundaries, the default mode of the human heart is we're going to seek revenge if somebody has wronged us. And that's why this law was given. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. 
right? This is in, in three different books of the Bible, in the Old Testament, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. They're all in there that says you have heard or, or an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What does that mean? All the ancient cultures had this. This is Hammurabi's code. You hear about this when you, when you learn in, in uh, eighth grade civics. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we think about that. A lot of times we're thinking, well, this is about, it's about revenge. You've got these guys in this ancient Near Eastern village and, and uh, one guy comes to his friend and he's like, oh man, something's hurting. And the dude looks at him and he's like, man, you lost your eye. Yeah, it got poked out in this, uh, in this fight. Oh my gosh, the guy took your eye. We need to go get him. We need to go get revenge. Let's go get him. An eye for an eye. And they, they run and they, they try and take out the guy's eye and they end up killing like 15 of their family members. That's usually what happens. Because when there's no laws governing these things, justice isn't really accomplished. It just becomes revenge. One eye gets taken out, 15 people are killed. Those guys get mad, they kill 100 people, and it just continues to escalate. This is the nature of revenge, and this is the, uh, the default of our hearts, is to not just get back what we lost, but to get revenge at them so that they would never do this again. But the problem is, when they've been the victim, then they fight back with even more force and strength. You see, when he says an eye for an eye, he's not really, he's not talking about revenge at all. What he's talking about is justice. Here's what he's saying. Listen, if you got your eye poked out, then the punishment, then what justice says is that an eye is the punishment for the loss of your eye. It's not an eye for a tooth. It's not an eye for a life. But if your eye is taken, then justice says that they have to give their eye as well. What did it do? Two things that this law did in the Old Testament is that it prevented the punishment and the revenge from being greater than the actual crime. He said, listen, that person jacked your eye. The punishment for them is not that they get all of their body parts taken out. They have to give their eye. It's justice. That's what he's trying to incorporate here. To prevent against revenge and vengeance and fighting against each other. But to say, okay, you lost an eye. I'm going to take an eye from him and that's it. It's even stop the violence, increase the peace. That's it. It's over. The first thing that the Old Testament law was saying is let's not go to to revenge anymore. Let's go to justice and have it be done with. The second thing that it did was saying this is a legal, legal issue. This responsibility of enacting justice is not given to an individual person. So this guy maims me, so I maim him back. No, it's not that. It's saying if he maims me, then it's up to the civil government to enact justice in order to make sure that personal revenge is not taken. That's what the law of the Old Testament was saying, is to promote justice instead of revenge. And when that works out well, if that worked out well today, then we'd live in a nice and just society. An eye for an eye rather than I got hurt a little bit. I'm going to go and I'm going to destroy somebody else. It doesn't, if, if the law actually worked and justice was served, then we'd have a peaceful and harmonious society. But it's not. It's not. And so we go forth fighting for revenge. We've been hurt by somebody. Somebody gossips about us. Then we go and we make up stories about another person. We trash them and we go on, on all these different medians in order to, to try, and, uh, try and get back at them. Because you see, the default of the human heart is not just to fight for justice, but it's to get revenge, to make sure in our heart of hearts, we think to make sure that these kinds of things would never happen again. But the problem with revenge is that the cycle continues and continues and continues and only escalates. 
And so Jesus says there's got to be a better way. Second thing that we see here is that kingdom culture is about laying down our rights and going the extra mile. In a culture that tells us we need to fight for our rights, it's all about revenge. But kingdom culture is different. Listen, people of God, we are different. We live by a different ethic. We don't fight back like that. We live differently. If, we don't, if, if, if all we're doing when we get wronged is to fight back, then there's nothing different about us than there is with people in the world. Then for all intents and purposes, we are practically speaking living the life of an atheist as if God does not exist in our lives. How do you respond when you're wrong? Jesus says there's a better way. You've heard that it was said eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Because there's a better way to do it. If the ancient cultures, actually if the the human heart tells you revenge is best, then the ancient code said, no, revenge may be what you want to do, but justice is better than that. What Jesus is saying, justice is okay, but there's even a better way to do that, a better way to live than that. He says kingdom culture is about laying down your rights, and he gives four ways, four ways in which our rights are taken from us, but how through the gospel we are able to lay down our rights and then go the extra mile for the sake of the people who have wronged us. The first thing he says here is, I tell you, do not resist an evil person, verse 39. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Have you ever, literally the word is slap. Someone slaps you on the right cheek. Anyone ever been slapped before? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. All the... All the seventh graders like, I've been slapped before. If you've been slapped, okay, I venture to say that the majority of us who've ever been slapped have been slapped on the left cheek, right? Why? Because the majority of people who are doing the slapping are right-handed people. But Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, what does that mean? That means if you've been slapped on the right cheek, it's a backhanded slap. He's not talking about you've been injured. He's saying you've been insulted. Here's the right that we have, the right to a sense of worth. When your sense of worth is taken from you, Jesus says you don't need to fight back. When you've been humiliated, somebody made fun of you, somebody trashed you on Instagram, on Twitter, they started talking smack about you. When someone maims your reputation, Someone slaps you on the, 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 the natural response. Say, how dare they say that about me? How dare they? I, I'm so insulted. I'm so humiliated. This is what Jesus is saying. Listen, if you are a beatitude person, and every child of God is, right, you know what it is to be poor in spirit. You know what it is that you have nothing but that you have been made a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God. Your sense of worth is not defined by what everybody tells you or says about you. That doesn't define who you are. For the world, that's how they might define themselves. But listen, you as a child of God are not defined by the way people might respond to you. Why would we put so much emphasis on what a mere mortal and oftentimes somebody that we don't care about says about us? Why would we define our worth by that? When Jesus is saying you have a deeper sense of worth that can never be taken from you, no matter how much you've been beat up, slapped up, humiliated, made fun of, mocked. 
Right? Why do we fight so hard for our right to have a sense of worth just because someone has said something bad about us? Can I tell you, man, if we were to let go of these things, you'd find a whole lot more joy and peace in your life, the kind that Jesus says you would have. But we care so much. Oh my gosh, that person's mad at me. Oh my gosh, I wonder what they're thinking about me. Oh my gosh, I wonder about these things. And, and God's saying, relax, why don't you stop thinking about that and think about what I think about you, Psalm 139. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. If I were to count them, they would outnumber all the sands. We would to think about that kind of stuff. We wouldn't fight for our right to have a sense of worth when we feel like it's been taken from us because it can't be taken from us. Someone slaps you on the right cheek, says, turn the other one also. Next, verse 40. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. A cloak in those days, Exodus 22 says, a cloak was your most, probably your most valued possession. It's a thing that in the court of law, your coat, your outer garment could never be taken from you. Right? This is your security. So every, every beggar story that you read, I think as far as I can remember, almost all the beggar stories you read about people begging for money from Jesus or the blind people had a coat with them. And sometimes when they receive from Jesus the healing they needed, it says they're throwing their cloak aside. Why do the gospel writers make it explicit that they threw their cloak aside? Because they're saying that what they've got from Jesus is so great that they don't need the one thing in life, the only thing in life that they were holding on to for their security. Because it was not just something that kept you warm on cold nights. This was your blanket when you slept. This was your comfort. If you're Linus, this is everything to you. It's your security. And Linus gets his cue from the Old Testament times. In a court of law, anything can be taken from you. You could sue everything out of another guy, but you cannot take their outer garment, their cloak, because it was their security. It was their everything. There'll be times in our lives when our security is threatened. What do you put your security in, people of God? Is it in the one thing, your relationship with God, that can never be taken from you? Or is it in something that can be taken and threatened? Because a lot of us put our hope and our security in a lot of other things that can be taken. And when they're threatened, we begin to get antsy. We begin to fight for those things. Some of us put our security in a relationship. All of your eggs for hope and life have been put in your marriage. And when your marriage begins to fall apart, you don't know what to do with your life anymore. You can't even go to God because he hasn't been your security. It's been all in that relationship. Some of you put all of your hope in that future relationship with that guy, that girl you're going to date. My life stinks, but as long as I have her, as long as I've got him in my life, everything's going to be okay. And so you fight tooth and nail to have that relationship. And if that's not there, if that feels threatened, then you feel like life is going to fall apart. Some of us put our security in money. And we put our hope in money thinking, if I can just have a little bit more, that you've got all this in your bankroll and somebody asks how much more you need, the answer is always just a little bit more, just a little bit more. We put our security in money thinking that that's going to protect us against the problems of life, but we all know that having a lot of money or having a lot of stuff, having all the right things isn't going to keep us from having issues in our lives. Saying, listen, when your security, earthly security is threatened, you don't need to fight for that. Why? Because you have a security that can never be taken away from you. Because you've got God. And though the storms of life may come, I love what Spurgeon said. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. 
those things that rob us of our earthly security, of our temporal security, of our worldly security, things that rob us of those things, they, we, we find ourselves falling upon the rock that is Jesus. We realize that our security has never been taken from us. Jesus says, you don't need to fight for that. Verse 41, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What he's talking about is, is, is this understanding that Jewish people were living enslaved to the Roman Empire. So at any point in time, if you're a citizen of Rome, by virtue of being Jewish, a Roman soldier could walk up to you and say, hey, uh, my bag is too heavy, carry this, and they could carry it up to a mile. That's why you remember when Jesus is carrying the cross on the Via Della Rosa. The Roman soldiers say, hey, you, Joseph of Arimathea, you carry his cross. Because that was the Roman right to citizens of their kingdom. Uh, you go up to a mile and the next person would come and he would carry it for you. But what Jesus is saying, listen, you're going about your own business, doing your own thing. You're at home with your family, you're at work, whatever. Roman soldier says, hey, come walk with me a mile. Your freedom has been taken away from you. Jesus is saying, hey, hey, don't just go the mile with him. Go an extra mile. Tell him, listen, my freedom doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on what you tell me to do. This is what, this is what they, they might have thought freedom was. Freedom was being able to say, no, I don't need to listen to what you have to tell me to do. They think that's what freedom is. That's not freedom. Real freedom is the ability to say, okay, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to follow you a mile, but to do it with joy. And then to be willing to go the extra mile. That means you're not enslaved to these earthly ideas of what freedom is. That's why our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries throughout the world, lying, sitting in solitary confinement, six feet by six feet in prison. The world looks at them and says they're not free. Could be the most alive people, the most joyful people, the most peaceful people, the most loving people, the most forgiving people. Why? Because they found a freedom that isn't defined by their circumstance. John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You know that freedom? Kind of freedom where even if somebody says, hey, can you do this for me? You're able to say, yeah, not only will I, yeah, I can do that, but I'll do that for an extra hour. I'll do that for an extra, I'll do that extra measure for you. Because I'm not bound by earthly ideas of freedom and imprisonment. Because I found the freedom for my heart. My chains are gone. I've been set free. And I can live out of that fullness and I can live in that freedom. You know that? This is what the gospel gives to us. And then the last thing, verse 42. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. These are the things that we fight for our sense of worth, our security, our freedom, and our finances. We hold so tightly to these things. Saying, listen, somebody wants some of your finances, lend freely to them, even if you know that you're never going to get it back. Why? Because we realize that even this is not ours. Even this is not ours. Because it, it, sh- it should be that the people of God who have received all of the bounty from heaven so freely should be the ones who most freely give to other people. 
we should be the best tippers out there, even if people haven't, our servers haven't treated us well. And we should be the ones who are, are yeah, man, I, I know that they, they didn't treat us well, but maybe they're having a hard day. I'm not going to re- have revenge. I'm not going to give them justice. I'm not going to give them, I'm going to give them grace. We should be the best, most generous people out there. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. If we've received that, if we've received mercy as endless as the sea, then shouldn't we be able to give at least a drop of mercy to the person who doesn't deserve it? See, there's got to be a connection between the gospel that we sing about and the gospel that we say that we've received and the practical outworkings in our lives. And we should be the kind of people who are the most lavish with our gifts that when we make food for people that there's always left. That's how God does it, right? God says, listen, I'm going to pour out all this food into your life, 5,000 people being fed. And then, oh, by the way, there's 12 doggy bags left over. Anybody wants to take it home. Always giving in abundance. That's how God gives in abundance to people who don't deserve it. People who don't deserve it. 5,000 people, nobody else gave their lunch, but God still lavishly blessed them with all that they needed and all that they wanted and more. As Christians, we've learned what it is to lay down our rights for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what it means. We take my light and let it shine. Live differently. There's an ethic and a kingdom culture that is different from the way the rest of the world lives and fights to have all these things. You know what? I was jacked up, so I'm going to get revenge on them. Jesus says, no, it's not like that. For us, it's not like that. We turn the other cheek we love. and We go the extra mile so that people say, wow, what's wrong with these guys are different. To the Roman soldier who says, carry my bag a mile and says, okay, you're done. And the guy, the, the guy looks at him and says, no, you know what? Hey, I'll go with you another mile. The Roman soldier's like, what is something different about this guy? Something different about the way that they live. When the rest of the world runs away from the fire, the Christians run into the fire to bring hope and to bring rescue. And people say, what's wrong with these? What's different about these people? There's something about these people, something divine within them. Because you see, when we live differently, we not only point to and show the life of Christ, At the very heart of it all, we are living in fulfillment of the life that Jesus called us to live. This is what Philippians says in one of the greatest literary pieces of theological truth. It says in Philippians 2.5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Here's what it means to lay down our rights and then to go the extra mile. It says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. This is what it means to lay down your rights. Here's what it means to go the extra mile. Even death on a cross. And how was that surrendering of rights seen and rewarded by the Father. This is what it says. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we, guys, when we lay down our rights and live in this way, That's how 
a world that fights for their rights, that demands their rights, that fights for revenge, will see the beauty of Jesus so that at his name they will bow and at his name they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Guys, as people of God who've received this, we have nothing to lose. We've got nothing to hide. We've got nothing to fear. We've got nothing to defend. But we've got everything to give and everything to gain. Guys, this ethic is counterculture, and it's not something that we can just say, I'm going to do. But to the degree that we've allowed the Holy Spirit to take control of our hearts and to the degree that we understand the gospel, that these things are true, the things that we sing about. We don't need to fight for our rights. We can surrender them to Jesus. For we have once said at our baptism, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray to the Lord. And let's ask God, Cleanse me for the ways in which I fought for my rights and sought revenge and hurt people and did not show Christ. And Lord, help me to know your love so deeply that you not only did that, all that Philippians 2, 5 through 11, you not only did that for the world, but you did that for me. That Jesus died for you. Jesus laid down his rights for you. Jesus was rejected so that you could be brought into the family. Jesus lost his sense of worth in order that you might never lose your sense of worth in the gospel. Everything that we have is because Jesus paid for it. That's our gift. And so the earthly rights that we have, we let go so that people might see Christ in us. Let's pray. Let's say, Lord, help me. I want to live for you. I live to honor you. I want to live to make your name known through my actions. As I take your light and let it shine. Let's pray together for a couple moments and then I'll pray and we'll continue. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you so much that you did not send your son Jesus to the earth in humiliation to live a life surrendering his rights, to live a life of humiliation, to live a life of constantly turning the other cheek and being spit upon. Did not send your son Jesus to lay down his rights on a cross and to go the extra mile for us in order that we would be just like the world. You gave your son in order that we might be like Jesus and show 
a watching world that there's a better way. There's only one way. His name is Jesus. And as we live in and live out this teaching, we help them to see the way that is Jesus, the truth that is Jesus, and the life that is you. So Lord, help us through the power of your spirit as we embrace the gospel and allow it to transform us to live this way for the glory of your name. We thank you so much for loving us. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.